0: Okay, well hello and welcome to this IFG uh, event on how to boost the UK's resilience uh, held in partnership with the British Red Cross. Uh, my name is Tom Sass, I'm an Associate Director here at IFG and I lead our work on policymaking. Uh, so it feels fitting given today's subject that those here in the room have battled their way through uh, snow and ice to get here. Uh, well done for that, thank you. Um, and of course that was on the back of a record-breaking heatwave in the summer and storms Arwen and Franklin not long before that. Um, Of course, more frequent and extreme weather events are not all that we have to contend with. Uh, We've just experienced a a sort of so-called once-in-a-century shock in the shape of the COVID pandemic Uh, and in the increasingly uncertain world in which we uh, live, we have to think about a very wide range of threats from biosecurity uh, to cyber attacks and so on. So today we're gonna be talking about the UK's resilience, its ability to adapt and respond to the very wide range of threats that we face. Uh, We at the IFG have published our own report on the topic of uh, managing extreme risks and we've also been working closely with some other organizations that have been doing some very good work on this, including the Committee in the Lords that looks at risk and resilience and the National Prepared Commission. Preparedness Commission and good to see colleagues here today. Uh, We are told that the government is due to be updating its own national resilience uh, strategy. Uh, The consultation closed quite some time ago, um, but I think it's probably in one of those areas of government activity that's been caught up in the maelstrom that has been UK government over the last year. So we look forward uh, to seeing that uh, and the details of it. Um, Today we're going to be discussing what should be in that strategy, uh, what lessons the UK should be learning uh, from Covid, from recent bouts of extreme weather, what the new risks are that we should be preparing for and how we should be be doing that, uh, the role of local government, communities, businesses uh, and so on, and how to make sure that politicians remain interested in this area uh, once crises abate. Uh, we have an excellent panel to discuss all of that. So we've got Mike Adamson uh, joining us remotely. Thank you, Mike. And uh, I hope your cough is uh, not too severe. Uh, so Mike is Chief Executive of the British Red Cross. Fleur Anderson, Shadow Cabinet Office Minister who's been developing Labour's proposals around resilience. Sophie Dunreuther, uh Director of the Centre for Long-Term Resilience, which is another organisation doing a lot of work on this space, particularly around long-term threats. And of course, Oliver Letwin, former Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster uh, and author of Apocalypse How, which uh, set uh, some of the sort of conversation on this and then sort of been a big concern of Oliver's for for some years. Um, So just an additional bit of housekeeping for those who have joined us uh, on the live stream. Uh, This is of course on the record. Hello and thank you to those who have joined online. Um, I'm going to ask some initial questions of my panel, but we'll have about 20 or 25 minutes for questions from you at the end. Those online, please submit those on Slido and those in the room, just put your hand up and we'll get a a microphone to you. So I'm gonna start with you, uh, Mike, if you can hear us all okay. Um, uh, So what do you think at the British Red Cross uh, recent years have shown about the UK's resilience when crisis hits uh
1: thanks so much Tom and I'm sorry that um I can't be at our own our very own party um, uh, as a failure of my own personal resilience um but uh, I think better not to be spreading lurgy amongst amongst you and testing your yours um yeah I mean look and, and it's great to have a, such a fantastic panel and um uh, such interest in the topic because as you say it's uh, it affects all of us, and as you've set the scene, and what we see in the world that we're, you know, operating in, both domestically and international, internationally now, it really is one of multiple simultaneous, protracted emergencies layered on top of each other. So vulnerabilities layered on top of, on top of one another, and where recovery, often from one emergency um, into the next, is often is often partial. We used to talk about bouncing back better. We don't talk about that anymore. These are cumulative um, impacts and whether, you know, from Grenfell, which I think was a watershed moment in understanding uh, community resilience in in the UK through to COVID, through to heat waves, to fires, flooding, and then to the UK impacts of global emergencies like Afghanistan and Ukraine um, and the ways in which they manifest themselves um, here. It's been a, you know, um, a pretty challenging four or five years and there's no prospect of that diminishing. Um, as the British Red Cross, even in 2022, we've helped um, over 150,000 people in emergencies here in the UK. And even this week, um, we're supporting people whose um, homes have lost their gas as a result of burst water mains in Sheffield. Um, and I think one of the critical uh, consequences of that is a sense of jeopardy um, that uh, here in the UK we're experiencing that perhaps that I used to encounter, I still encounter when I. Um, uh, go to see our work around the world where people are living with that sense of uncertainty. I'm not sure we've had that here in the UK until really the last two or three years, particularly through from COVID. And the long-term impacts of that on our own psychological, psychological impacts on our own personal resilience, I think is, is potentially quite profound. And we don't really know how that's going to pan out. So, so what have we learned? Um, I think firstly, around resilience, that it's about people as well as infrastructure. Um, And it starts with connectedness um, at an individual and community level. And that's about connectedness to information about situations and threats, connectedness to neighbours and connectedness to the supports that people need. And and that needs to be nurtured. And I think the world of emergencies is this curious mix of, um, you know, the traditional command and control structures, gold, silver and bronze and all of that language. But in actual fact, resilience is part of an It comes out of an ecosystem. And you have this strange mix of things of, that are about command and control, but actually an ecosystem um, that enables people to be more resilient. Second thing is around preparedness. Um, as, as people and communities across the UK, we're not pre- we're not prepared. Um, the recent report we did um, as the British Red Cross earlier this year called Every Time It Rains showed that even for people living in floodplains, only about one in four people understood the flood risk um, that they were exposed to. Only about one in seven knew what to do about it. And about one in five of them didn't have insurance for the consequences of it. Um, so there's a sense of we at community level not being prepared. I think recovery is um the forgotten phase of an emergency, really. Um, you know, you look at the long-term emotional scarring from events, um, be it like Grenfell or COVID um, or the or flooding. Um you know, again, the research that we did recently showed that whereas the people who had yet to experience flooding thought the most important thing would be its practical consequences in terms of you know replacing you know goods and um getting back on their feet again for the people who had experienced flooding it was actually the loss of sentimental items the things that mattered to them the emotional scarring and I, I think that um we neglect that at our peril fourth thing i think we've really learned about the role of insight um, and data um you know, we had this great expression in COVID, didn't we? we were all in the same storm but in different boats we need to be using data and insight to understand which boats are most affected. And not just in the case of something like COVID, looking at health data, but actually as a British across, we developed a vulnerability index, which built in other indicators of vulnerability uh, to, t- so we could better target our resources. And the fifth bit of learning, I think is really actually about, is about government, um, which I've got much more familiar with, trying to work with uh, since really, yeah, um, uh, you know, but then into COVID and, and and beyond, and government, you know, needing to be much more, as a you know, former prime minister said, much more joined up, curious about the adjacencies between departments, and curious about the other, you know, who else can help. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of what we do about that, we've got learning what will come from a Grenfell inquiry, from a COVID inquiry, but they're long-term bits of work, and in the meantime, we need to get on with it. So there's something about, yeah. You know, putting people first uh, front and centre. Some of the recent reports have understandably put a lot of emphasis on infrastructure um, resilience, but actually the people resilience needs to be also at the heart of everything. If you look at our national risk register, I think it's actually a very good document overall. I'm one of those sad people who carries it around with me because it's useful to flash in front of people, but actually does it really draw out the human impacts of the risks that are on there and actually when you look at it from a people lens are we pulling that through we are indeed waiting with bated breath for the national resilience strategy all the trailers are positive i think actually around a whole society approach um but alongside a whole society approach doesn't just happen it also requires um clear roles and responsibilities for which people are held to account in central and local governments um uh, and you know the expectations of local resilience forums and the tracking of performance and support because consistency is the bane it, or lack of consistency in a way is the bane of um, the emergency response world but it also needs whole system leadership um, and actually where leaders in all sectors including my, uh, our own sector lean into working together on whole whole system outcomes and actually that's that's not about legislation sometimes, it's just about orientation and attitude um, and, and around leadership. And then finally, I'd just say, you know, I think the key part of this is the recognition that this is everyone's business, um, resilience. It, it it affects all of us and therefore we all have a role from individual um, through to community, through to Uh, the voluntary community sector and local government and as part of that um, we as the red cross are co-founders of the voluntary community sector emergency partnership which has brought together more than 250 local and national organizations committing to uh, build the connections um, through partnership agreements and joint uh, exercising and capability building um, so that we're better prepared when emergencies happen. we know each other and that combination of local and natural and central government is also on in that uh, that partnership and that's a really good thing because we then need to act and orient and, and work together. So Mike, thank you. Yeah, back, back to you, Tom. A
0: really strong call to think about the kind of people and community element of this and what we should be looking for in in the strategy. Um, Just before bringing Sophie in, we've had our first very welcome challenge uh, on Slido, uh, which is anonymous has said, define at the outset what panel members mean by resilience. So I used uh, the sort of definition which you hear quite often, which is sort of ability to adapt and respond to change or to threats. But if any panel members want to elaborate or or differentiate from that definition, uh, please do. Um, Sophie how resilient are we against really long-term risks that you focus on and worry about?
2: Thanks, Tom. I'll get to that, but let me first um, set out a bit about what my organisation, the Centre for Long-Term Resilience, uh, which has resilience in its name, thinks that resilience is. Um, Our definition is is a really positive one, so wanting us to be able to withstand shocks and, and, and crises, but really be able to bounce back stronger um, and not accept this kind of hunkering down mentality as and when a, a, a crisis hits. Um, so I'll answer your, your question in, in two parts. Firstly, how resilient are we? And secondly, what can we do to become even more resilient? So frankly, I don't think we're yet resilient enough. We need to stop accepting this perma-crisis mode where we lurch from crisis to crisis and instead really believe that we can step back and build resilience to all major risks. You asked me about long-term risks, Tom, and at my organisation, the Centre for Long-Term Resilience, our core concern that we focus on are the long-term risks which, which would have a hugely high impact on a global scale. So think COVID plus future scenarios, which could be equally or even more devastating than the impacts of COVID-19, which we've all lived through. Nuclear conflict and the climate crisis are two such risks that we all know about, but there are some others that that meet that unfortunate threshold of COVID plus. One is artificial intelligence. Uh, This includes risks arising from the misuse of artificial intelligence or AI systems, which might behave in unintended ways particularly in high stakes domains that could lead to major risks. Another is biosecurity, which includes naturally occurring pandemics such as COVID-19, but also laboratory leaks, bioweapons and dual use research. And then a third area where I don't think we're yet resilient enough is this meta risk of insufficient national and global risk management. This is worsened by reduced trust and cooperation between countries too. So then on to part two, what can we do to become more resilient? Well, a resilient world is one which has systems in place to anticipate, mitigate, and respond to all long-term risks. And the UK can be a global leader in developing truly effective risk management, first at home and then as part of an international effort. Um, The obvious point being that many, if not all, of these long-term risks are global. Um, There are some promising signs that this is starting to happen. Um, The rumours around um, an incoming national resilience strategy, um, the ongoing refresh of the UK's biological security strategy, And in more good news, there are many relatively expensive things, inexpensive things, apologies, um, that we can be doing to transform UK and global resilience. It's a bit like an insurance policy. Small, ongoing amounts of funding can make a huge difference in the event of a crisis hitting. I'll focus on just one of these small, inexpensive things that we could be doing um, so that Tom doesn't start glaring at me. Um, from my right, Um, and that is an overarching risk management framework based on a model called the three lines of defence. So the three lines of defence is used extensively in the private sector, Um, and it's an overarching framework which achieves three things, some of which Mike has already touched on. So first, it avoids the siloed management of risk. Second, it separates ownership, oversight and assurance, which provides for a degree of independence. And third, and this is um, sharing a very similar perspective um, with Mike, it assigns clear accountabilities to each line. It usually involves a chief risk officer on the second line as a single single point of accountability for the overall risk management process. And this means that frontline risk owners on the first line are held accountable for mitigating the risks that they own. The private sector can also offer examples of best practice in terms of process for identifying, assessing and preventing or mitigating risks with the use of regular workshops to keep risk registers dynamic and adaptive. And finally, it's a model for bringing resilience teams together internationally. You've got the quarterly meeting of Chief Risk Officer at the World Economic Forum. There's clearly room for UK leadership enhancing cooperation and resilience internationally to tackle which are, after all, global risks largely. So in summary, there's more to do to make us more resilient, there's some encouraging progress, and implementing a three lines of defence model in government, in my opinion, would be a great place to start.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Sophie. And really pleased you mentioned some of those proposals around how to uh, reform processes in central government. That's something that we also have very similar ideas on and have been somewhat encouraged by particularly the sort of split of the civil contingency secretariat and some reforms in that direction. Yeah. Oliver, um, you've seen this from inside government in your role as uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. You know, this is often an issue that governments do find it difficult to focus on. You have much more sort of day-to-day immediate political pressures. So why is it hard and what do you think sort of politicians can do to, to, to sort of make it easier for us to get better at this?
3: Um, well, um, the danger of writing books about these things is that I've said enormous amounts about it and I could spend the next uh, four (laughs) and a half hours telling you why it's so difficult in government, Uh, I need to focus on just one or two things. Um, I think the two things that are uh, most uh, in the way uh, of doing anything serious, and incidentally I don't share any of the optimism that has been described about the uh, national resilience strategy, Strategies strategies, I mean strategies come, strategies go. Actually, in order for something to happen, you have to have some people who are going to do some things uh, to make things better. And that's a whole different ballgame. I see no sign at all at the moment of Her Majesty's Government being organised in a way that will do that. So I'm profoundly pessimistic about this, Um, although I'm rather optimistic about civilisation as a whole, which I think is quite resilient. We've got through various world wars, let alone Covid and so on. And actually, the fact that governments are hopeless at this, Uh, mercifully is counteracted by the fact that society as a whole is extraordinarily Mm. strong and does somehow or other miraculously bounce back from great disasters. But it'd be nice if governments could organise themselves so that they made it less necessary for society to bear this burden. Uh, And the two things that I think above all get in the way are lack of bandwidth Mm. and uh, a lack of political salience. Uh, And they are intensely related to one another. Um, uh, the truth is that um, uh, in any system doesn't a democracy or, or authoritarian regimes alike um, m- ministers are very busy and they're very busy with um, what happens today in fact very often what happens this morning or even this hour mm. uh, and um, it's no good Uh, saying that they'll deal with the problem now, uh, later, because later the problem has become a crisis and they've had to resign. So they're very conscious of this. So their whole focus is on how to survive. Um, uh, 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 And um, that's incidentally why the, the golden moment is the moment the Labour Party currently has, which is when you have a period when you're going to be in government, but you are in opposition and you can actually devote time and effort to thinking about these things, which once you're in government, essentially, you can't. Um, You can can implement if you're lucky, but you can't really think um, because you're responding all the time. And so it's that lack of bandwidth that, above all, gets in the way. It doesn't get in the way of ministers spending an enormous amount of time responding to the current crisis. Mm. It gets in the way of ministers spending time worrying about the the crisis that isn't current. Mm. They they simply don't understand the question, why should I be doing that when I've got so many crises to deal with that are current. Mm. And the second reason is intimately related, political salience. Um, uh, It's simply not of any interest politically Mm. to make the country safer in relation to something which isn't happening and which may never happen. Mm. Um, uh, There's nothing you can do about this. So what you require to do is to have somebody in government and this will only happen if the person who's running the government, uh, in our case the Prime Minister of the day, has a real interest in the subject Mm. and nominate somebody who's going to spend their time as real power um, uh, trying to improve Mm. these things because um, uh, there is absolutely no political kudos. It's internal exclusively. Mm. If you I hesitate to say this in the presence of the Shadow Paymaster General who may be hoping to make a, uh, a name for herself as resilience, but I assure you that you will make no name for yourself by doing the best things. Yes. Your, your memorial will be that you did the right things. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, uh, That's a wonderful thing to do, but uh, it isn't public. Uh, the public thing is when it goes wrong. Um, when it's going right, there is no acclaim. Um, the fact that we didn't have COVID for 100. Years or in, well, we're at it, 1,000 years, is not to anybody's credit. Um, uh, and likewise, whichever disaster it is that we do anything about preventing now that doesn't ever occur will never create any credit for the person that spent their time making sure it didn't happen. No. Um, and these are ineluctable facts. Yeah. No time and no political salience. And so the question is, can government find a way, or can it, as it comes into government, find a way of putting itself in a position where it is actually focused on the national interest Mm. in this respect, and knows that it's not going to get any political credit for it, Mm. but it's nevertheless got machinery to make it happen, which means autocratic activity from a prime minister downwards, which forces very reluctant permanent secretaries and very reluctant secretaries of state to do things which they see no merit in doing from the point of view of their own Mm. careers and the advancement of their own agendas and dealing with current crises. Mm. That's a very tall
0: order. That's really interesting on the the political salience. And in some sense, as you say, that's an ineluctable fact. But just before coming to Fleur, I mean, let's say that you did have a minister who wanted to be that person, who wanted to prioritise this It might be Fleur, it might be someone else. Um, Do they know what to focus on? Do we know what money to spend things on? We've just heard Mike and Sophie talk about really quite a vast array of different types of threats that we might face do we know what the things that are that we need to do that would sort of help us respond to the range of things or actually are, are ministers kind of struggling with the, the huge kind of uncertainty and the different range of things that they might have to respond to?
3: Well, there are great issues about what it matters most to do, uh, but actually I don't think they're the things that are problematic mm. because the truth is we're spoiled for choice. There are a thousand things it would be worth doing mm. and doing anything would be good. Uh, let me just give you an example of what I mean. Um, when I was uh, responsible for these matters and uh, we had had the Ebola outbreaks in, uh, in Africa and I spent a lot of time flying back and forth to Africa in conjunction with other people in similar positions in other developed countries trying to prevent Ebola spreading, it became clear to me that we ought to do something to ensure that we were surveying the world for viruses heading our way. And so I uh, asked the cabinet secretary to establish, and we did establish, a very tiny uh, two full-time equivalent people uh, unit in the Cabinet Office to do that job, to survey the world for viruses heading our way. That was all they were commissioned to do. Mm. Uh, uh, And uh, they began to give up, uh, submit reports on a regular basis of what was coming our way. Uh, The only thing that we spotted during the time that it was up and running, the very tail end of the Cameron administration Uh, was a a virus in the United States, which actually never quite got to us. Um, uh, You you may notice that it would have been quite helpful if we'd had this unit in operation when something called COVID arrived. Hmm. We didn't, why didn't we? Well, I investigated a bit what had happened and you know, blow me down and no surprise, the two full-time equivalent people had been switched into planning for the actual crisis, which was Brexit. Hmm. Um, They were busy. And of course, if you asked the cabinet secretary of the day—I mean, incidentally, I didn't, but I couldn't—but but if if you had done, I'm absolutely sure the cabinet secretary would have said, "But you, you must be mad! I've got, I've got literally, you know, all over Whitehall. I, I think, I think, didn't we hire about hundred thousand additional people to deal with Brexit one way or another? I've literally hired tens of thousands of people to deal with. It. You're really telling me you want to keep two full-time equivalent people on something that is not happening at the moment?" But if we had, we might actually have spared ourselves. Mm-hmm. Not, of course, the whole of the COVID would still have come. We'd still have had many of the problems. But at least we would have been much better informed about what was coming and when it was going to come. Mm-hmm. And we could have done some early planning beyond what we were already planning for, which was a pandemic flu, which is a different kind of disease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, that, that is quite an interesting, but I mean, as I said, literally hundreds of examples of this, quite an interesting indication of what I'm talking about, that it isn't a matter of complicatedly working out brilliant schemes for doing things we've never envisaged. We know quite enough of the things we could do to make ourselves quite a lot safer in a lot of different respects mm. and to have fallbacks for various things and so on. The reason we don't do them is that we don't put the energy into it because we're dealing with the current crisis mm. Mm. and what's politically sexy. Mm.
0: So, Fleur, that's a good moment to, to bring you in. And you've sort of heard from Oliver about, you know, I suppose why this is difficult to, to, to sort of persuade colleagues on. As a minister, I mean, how would a, a Labour government approach this, this topic of, of boosting the UK's resilience?
4: Thanks very much, Tom, and thank you for inviting me here today. Thanks to the Institute for Governance for holding this event um, and to the Red Cross. Uh, it's good to see you virtually there, Mike. Um, and it's really amazing timing that we're having this because I do hope that we'll have the National Resilience Strategy, or whatever it's called, um, out shortly. I've been asking about it in the last two Cabinet Office orals and um, And had you know in due course kind of answers. Um, I've had a response from the cabinet office when um, I reminded them that they said it would be prepared in the autumn saying well the autumn officially goes to December the 21st. That's maybe news to all of us but (laughs) by next Wednesday we may have this strategy and I think to have more people who've engaged in this meeting today and are thinking about that strategy and able to look at it when it comes out I think is a really good thing for our country and for a democracy. So I'm very glad for the timing of this event as well. And just a bit about my background. So I've worked for WaterAid for many years, working around the world on water resilience and adaptation to climate change. Um, and I was shipped out of Mali because of Ebola um, uh, when that happened. And so some experience there, but also more recently, I worked running a community centre, a local community centre, and really thinking about how our community in Battersea could be more resilient. Um, um, uh, uh, a better, stronger community, which would be better at overcoming inequalities in our community. And I think that's the link there for the Labour Party there, is that if we, don't, um, if we don't prepare, we're not ready for shocks and emergencies, if we're not a resilient country, we will fail those who are most vulnerable and we will increase inequalities in our country, as we saw that happened in COVID and happens for every emergency. So Labour has always taken resilience very seriously. The last Labour government introduced the Civil Contingency Act in 2004, which was praised for its efficient handling of crises like the mass floods, the foot and mouth outbreaks, and the attempted terrorist attack in Glasgow Airport. Compare that with the current government showing time and time again that they're not prepared, they don't take resilience seriously enough, and Mike from the Red Cross saying that we're just not ready as a country. We should be ahead of events, we should be on top of the detail. Um, and I've seen, t- again, during the run-up to the pandemic, how that resilience infrastructure was undermined and, and Brexit did take over in terms of coming top of mind, um, as Oliver was saying. So how do, we, how do we combat against that? How do we combat against the exercises not being held or a culture in which the government is able to hold exercises and learn lessons without seeming to be beaten about the head by the media? We have to change the culture in which it's all right to have really good and um, thorough exercises on preparedness for um, emergencies. Um, How do we do that? How do we learn lessons in real time um, and share those lessons widely? Um, How do we not have COBRA meetings missed by a PM? Um, How do we share information and have uh, a a joined-up government? Um, That's what has been obsessing me um, anyway for now. So these are the things that um, Labour would put in place. These are the things we're thinking about for now. Firstly, we'd fix the system of government problem that the pandemic exposed. We would ensure a whole system across Whitehall is prepared for national emergencies and that it coordinates and acts in unison. I know it's easy to say sitting here in opposition, but that is what we'll aim to do, to have a much more across government approach. And that means training up teams and working with shadow teams from now onwards, but working with all of the teams when in government. But we'd also need someone to drive this through all the time. So we've been calling for the post of a dedicated Minister for Resilience within the Cabinet Office. The Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster has been saying to me, we have got a Minister for Resilience, but it's one part of a portfolio. But I would be talking about a dedicated Minister for Resilience who could do this all the time and overcome some of the things that you were talking about there, Oliver. It would be their sole focus. And we would also pre- create a new national security subcommittee on national resilience with formal responsibility for preparedness and resilience policy to oversee the whole process. A committee able to step back from the actual emergencies and able to look ahead. We'd conduct an, an urgent review of COBRA as well. And a model we have been talking about is the three lines of defence model. We've been talking about that with Sophie and her colleagues. Secondly, we would that's the the national level. Secondly we'd look at the local level as well and we would overhaul local resilience forums. Local resilience forums were brought in by the last Labour government um, to prepare and plan for emergencies at local levels. I've been meeting many people who've been involved in running and been involved in local resilience forums across the country um, and they're very impressive, very impressive individuals who did amazing work and do amazing work but they're often very patchy and they would be the first to say this. There's a postcode lottery of what you can expect from your local resilience forum they're not consistent you should have the best response you should know that you'll have that wherever you live in the country and every local resilience forum should be empowered and able to do that as well so we would introduce proper support ac- clear accountability um, new training standards for officials as well as formal inspections of lrfs um, quality assurance standards framework and funding would have to follow that but i don't have a figure on that. Thirdly, Labour would implement and deliver a whole-of-society approach to resilience that, that Mike's been talking about there. We'd, we'd bring in civil society and local community organisations, businesses, volunteer groups into the heart of national emergency preparedness all the way down to regional um, the, all the different nations and local all the way through. One um, example of this that really stood out to me was that during the pandemic, we were looking at where we would have vaccine centres in my constituency. And um, we have a very good local borough. We have lots of local organisations that I know very well. um, And yet Deloitte was was, um, employed to talk to me and say, we don't know your area at all, where should we have them? And I thought there are so many places we could have been going to first than to Deloitte. Um, But if we had a a different system, a different approach, including all the right people from the start in preparedness, that would be... And also a a real-time learning approach and sharing that learning as we go on. And finally, I know I'm coming to the end of my time, we can't talk about resilience without talking about procurement as well. So we have a whole host of procurement offers and changes to policy that we would have alongside our resilience planning as well. Um, That's Giving small and medium businesses and local voluntary organisations, community organisations, fairer opportunities to um, apply for contracts, get tough on those suppliers to make sure they do apply, that we can claw back money when they don't, and guarantee transparency for taxpayers who will go through this not having to go to court to find out what was going on during the pandemic, as we've had to, but actually have transparency throughout. Um, and information sharing is just an absolute key to a, a culture change throughout all of this.
0: Thank you. Claire, thank you for that. And really, really clear on reforms to sort of processes and the mechanisms within government and how you would use those differently. Uh, I just want to ask about the, the money point, because um, there is a question, there's a question that's come in from John Britton here around, you know, does the panel believe the public would be prepared to spend more money on boosting mm. resilience? Things like stockpiles of PPE, vaccines, etc. Um, you know, one response to, to COVID was to think that actually, okay, we hadn't perhaps got the right plans in place in government, but also we didn't have enough capacity in our healthcare system. And I know that Labour's been looking in the climate space, particularly around investment that would you know, be, be for decarbonising the economy, but also for boosting our resilience to climate threats. So I just wondered how that question of public investment sort of featured in, in your thinking around resilience.
4: Well, it is essentially, you can't do this without some expenditure and some money. Um, We are looking into that. I'm not going to give a figure on it now, but but I assure you that I'm working on it. And I know Sophie's been doing some work on the actual cost that this would make, and it's not huge amounts. Mm. Um, A lot of this is about a culture change. In terms of the the PPE stockpiles, there had been a history of building up stockpiles and moving them on through the system. So it didn't cost a huge amount, Mm. but that had been run down in the years leading up to the pandemic. Um, partly it may be because of looking at Brexit more, other reasons may be. So it didn't have to be that we were stockpiling huge amounts of anything we might need for any emergency, but it's having a system of moving them through um, the the process. So on one hand, yes, it it will cost money. We can't do this without it. Local resilience forums, it's one of the things they say all the time. We need funding and we need it multi-annually as well, not having to keep back applying for every year. Um, But also this doesn't necessarily have to cost a huge amount, a culture shift would make a huge amount of difference in this as well.
0: Mm. Brilliant, uh, yeah and, and we did some work on the COVID procurement as well and we were definitely persuaded of those sort of rapid procurement frameworks that might allow us to, to get what we need more quickly when crisis hits. Just to ask a, a couple more questions before I bring questions from the audience in, Mike and Sophie I thought I might just turn to you and ask Perhaps Mike first. As we're waiting for this national resilience strategy, do you, from the, the voluntary and community sector, have particular tests that you are really looking out for in terms of what you want to see in that? That will kind of, for you, indicate whether this strategy has a chance of, of really making a difference.
1: Well, I mean, I hear I hear what you know Oliver says, um, and, he, and yeah, and it, and and also hear yeah you know, Flour's vision, and of course you know, both must be right. There is a reality check there from Oliver, but Fleur's vision also must be on the right track. And it's, for us, as in Serbia, you know, we work on a lot of intractable issues of things that are just hard to make progress on. You've always got to believe the glass is half full, otherwise you wouldn't do anything. And in the context of the National Resilience Strategy, I think the language of um, whole society approaches really matters, but it only... But then what has to follow is the... Um, is actually some investment in, in the kind of preparedness and information and support that gives people at local community levels agency That in so that in a whole society approach they can actually take action. Otherwise, it's just words on a page. And you know, I gave evidence at the Grenfell inquiry, and I have to say, when I looked at all the material that had been produced by the Cabinet Office over the years, you couldn't fault it for what was there. And yet we still had this very inconsistent approach that in fact Fleur's just alluded to, of a patchwork quilt of LRFs, of capabilities, of arrangements, of in- quality of engagement um, with um, the voluntary community sector. And that's why we invested in creating the voluntary community sector emergency partnership, but including government. We deliberately, did we do not want to talk to ourselves we're trying to make it easier for government to work with us and show the capability that we have that can then actually lean into a whole society approach. But it requires yeah, the culture change that's been alluded to, and that's about leadership um, and about curiosity across departmental, uh, organisational and geographical boundaries. It's, it's as much attitudinal as it is about um, the formal investments which are required in that preparedness and the clear standards for um, of what should be expected of an LRF and the peer review mechanisms through which um, their, the quality and consistency of what they offer is, is made available. So it is about not only a whole society approach, but a whole system change. And we want to see evidence that not only of the language and narrative in the National Resilience Strategy, but of the follow-through that gives that a chance of being realized. And that needs to, there does need to be some funding flows that are associated with that. But you know, we know from all our global work, you know, you invest one pound in advance of an emergency in order to save four pounds later. This is good value for
0: money. And Sophie, did you want to come in on that tests for the, the national resilience strategy and what you're
2: looking for? Thanks, Tom. It's a great question. And I I think the government have sort of um already set that ambition um looking back to when Penny Mordaunt, who was previously the Cabinet Office Minister, um, who had announced that there would be a national resilience strategy, when she gave a speech uh, sharing more detail about the vision for this strategy, she mentioned how it was a clear role of, of HMG to better understand these long-term risks. Um, and, and what I would hope from an upcoming national resilience strategy um, would be that it's, it's fully fledged and that the government sees a core role of government as preparing um, and mitigating these risks and that that doesn't get pushed out just to resilience forums or just to think tanks and charities, but that government sees a central role for itself. Um, in, in that vision, I'd, I'd be really disappointed um, if it didn't include areas like much, much clearer risk ownership, um, ideally this this three lines of defence model, um, longer time horizons for the national security risk assessment um, such that that incorporates longer term risks and goes beyond the, the previously used two year time horizon. Um, and going back to Oliver's point, um, just, ensuring that small amounts of ongoing funding is, is available and ring-fenced and that the strategy actually gets implemented. We see that as one of the biggest risks to all good strategies, is just that it remains a piece of paper um, and there's so much will from a whole range of, of organisations and experts and <laughs> private sector um, colleagues around um, in the audience. Um, to play a part in, in making the UK and, and wider world more resilient. So I hope that the, the strategy calls on that coalition um, and is, is truly ambitious um, and fully-fledged.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. I'm going to open it up to questions uh, in the room. If you've got a question, if you want to put your hand up uh, and say uh, what organisation you're from. Yep, we'll take one down here at the front. Uh, if anyone else has a question... Yeah, Toby, I'll take, I'll take a couple.
5: Thanks very much. Um, Oliver Marsh from the International Public Policy Observatory at UCL. Um, this is a question on Mike's point about systems. Any crisis has multiple domains. Uh, so COVID, for instance, the health crisis, economic crisis, well-being crisis. We've just finished a report on how data and evidence were used during decision-making in governments in the COVID crisis. And there was a concern that although COVID was a multi-domain crisis, there was a massive focus on the health and as a result, epidemiologists, for instance, maybe had a stronger voice than other forms of expertise. So the question is: When you're facing a crisis, you need to pull in evidence and data and expertise from multiple different domains. That's one problem. How do you also ensure, as a government, that you, as a politician or government official, are able to synthesize and balance all those competing different domains in an unpredictable crisis?
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Oliver. Question, evidence, Toby.
6: Uh, hi, and um, thanks very much, uh, Toby Harris, Chair of the National Preparedness Commission. I think the, 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 the challenge, um, I mean, if we get this strategy, which I'm told is now being rebranded as a framework, and I don't know whether that's good or bad, um, it could be good in the sense that that might be a recognition that government is only one partner in all of this and that the voluntary community sector, the business sector, local authorities are all part of the, uh, of, of the framework though I have to say I'm slightly worried that framework in governmental terms sounds less important than a strategy. Um, but when we get it, I think the big test will be the extent to which it is able to look at things systemically and look at second- and third-order consequences of particular um, crises and things that might arise, and the extent to which it's going to bake into the way in which government operates and the way in which um, the rest of the public sector and the private sector and the volunteering community sector uh, have baked into their DNA the importance of um, long-term thinking as opposed to simply short-term thinking, and how they bake into it, the fact that they've got a responsibility, not just government, but everybody else, a responsibility for creating resilience and preparedness. Now, I don't think that's easy, I think one of the things that Oliver said where he talked about the importance of leadership, ultimately, government doesn't work unless the leadership is saying very clearly, this is what we expect to happen in all parts of government. And I think the question for me is the extent to which you can require that leadership to take place. I mean... Um, it's difficult to define what good leadership is. It's, somebody once said it's a, um, rather like a tea bag that you only discover how good it is once it gets into hot water. But, I mean, there's a, there is a need, really, to make sure that this is not something that you're waiting along for a leader who's going to give the Oliver Letwins um, or the Fleur Andersons the head to go ahead and make sure all this happens. It's why it becomes a necessary part of being a leader, whether it's a national government, local government, corporate leader, or wherever else it might be, that this is an an essential part of my job as a leader is to build resilience and preparedness. Mm. Mm.
0: Oliver, I might start with you on those two questions. So a question from the other Oliver on, on sort of synthesizing data and evidence across different domains. We've had a couple of questions online as well about that challenge of pulling in the evidence you need in a, in a crisis. And then Toby's point there about actually a systemic approach and, and leadership.
3: Well, I think I mean, these are both very good questions and very connected, uh, uh, I think, or remarks. Um, so far as balancing domains is concerned, um, uh, I don't think that there is a, a recipe um, uh, that will sort of ensure that the cake is perfectly baked. Um, During COVID, I speak as an observer, like the rest of us from the outside, but uh, as far as one could see, um, there was a a, a kind of inner cabinet created, uh, sort of war cabinet um, that did contain uh, the chancellor as well as the health secretary uh, and uh, and the cabinet office uh, minister. So it, it had what it needed in principle to do balancing. Um, And I don't think that the then government was uh, unconscious of the economic aspects of the matter because uh, if it had been, it wouldn't have invented furlough which was one of the successes of the, I mean leave aside the Bank of England's failure to recognize it as a fiscal policy. Uh, which was really monetary policy. But I mean, the the first order effect was very good. It kept employment up, it kept uh, the the economy stable, uh, and it it was an unprecedentedly enormous injection of public funds for for a purpose. Um, So I think that if Treasury, uh, well, in fact, if the present Prime Minister was then Chancellor of the Czech were were sitting here, he'd tell us that that there was balancing going on. They They were aware of the health consequences, but they were also aware of the economic consequences, and they took action on both fronts. Some more successful than others. Um, uh, I think the problem in general, therefore, is not as long as you've got the right ministers around the table and you know the subcommittee that, that I understand, all you know, marks labour is is for uh, the labour is going to uh, is going to institute would, would in principle presumably contain people from, from the relevant departments and they would therefore naturally bring different perspectives and be balanced out. Mm. I, I think the the, the problem is. Uh, uh, the sort of real-life problem uh, that, that actually it isn't often till you're well-advanced in a crisis that you begin to understand what, it, what its dimensions really are. Um, so it, it, it all comes back to the question, have you in advance done some things that will not, not obviate the problem, because you can't, but make it easier for you to come quickly to an understanding of what you're dealing with rather than coming slowly to it? And, and the problem is, if you come slowly, an awful lot of people have been damaged en route um, so I, I think that's the, the best that can be done, is just to do some early, prepared, uh, some early preparations in order to get to the point where you can respond effectively and in a balanced way more rapidly. Uh, which brings us to the question, how do you get the leadership that does that? Um, uh, well. Uh, if I may, I, I want to dwell on, because I, I think really the most important thing about this seminar is the effect it has on, on the Labour Party, which I persist in believing is going to be the next government of our country. And there is a real chance now in the next two years that it gets this right, which would be to all our advantage, regardless of how we vote in the next election. <laughs> um, uh, and I, mean, I, I was encouraged actually by what Fleur had to say. I, I think though there's one very major point, and it's very unfair because of course, it's really clear who should be uh, the recipient of these remarks, rather than, you can't determine who's going to be in which cabinet and so on. But it all sounds good, except with one qualification, which is who, or rather what rank, is this resilience minister going to be? Mm-hmm. Because if this resilience minister is a junior minister, even if the person in question sits on the subcommittee of the National Security Council that deals with this, which, incidentally, I think it's well worth having, but it has to be used... We did for a while operate on that basis. I think it is helpful. Uh, if it's a junior minister, uh, A4CRI, a junior minister who is not very closely identified with and doesn't carry the imprimatur of the Prime Minister, it will have exactly no effect whatsoever. Mm. It will be a name on the door, and if it may be a very worthy individual with a great deal of, of, of goodwill, we won't get anywhere because when this individual rings up the Home Secretary or the Foreign Secretary or the Chancellor of the Exchequer or whatever and says, could you please, the answer will be, why are you troubling me? I have much bigger things to do, go away, get lost. Mm. Uh, I know it sounds brutal and horrible and so on, but it's the truth. If it's a cabinet minister who's very close to the Prime Minister and who rings up and who is known by the person at the other end of the phone to be ringing on behalf of the Prime Minister, and if the person at the other end of the phone knows that if they challenge what's being asked, They'll probably have the Prime Minister ringing next. Then you get some action. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the scheme that you're outlining, I think, is a good scheme. But it needs the right level. And, and Oliver, that's just... where the leadership comes in. It's not, we're not actually demanding, because it's impossible, that neither Mrs Thatcher nor Tony Blair nor Gordon Brown nor David Cameron nor, well, I won't mention anyone after that, um, uh, none, of, none of them <laughs> would have been able to devote their entire lives to planning for the future. It just wasn't feasible. They had much too many things to do that were really very urgent. But all of them actually found ways of having somebody that they were willing actually to empower to do these things at various points. Mm. And the leadership we therefore demand is that. It's the willingness to invest capital in promoting the salience of this activity to the point where there is a cabinet minister who does nothing else. And the nothing else that you mentioned is very, very important. and who has real clout because they have the Prime Minister behind them. That's what we actually require. If we could get that, it would be a transform scene. I'm mm. sure there'll be some reasonable strategy or framework at some time, but it's the doing of that, mm. the, the <laughs> translation of, of it into action by having the relevant person with the relevant power that would really make a difference.
0: Yeah, And, and you were there in, in sort of being Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster but had a, a lot of other things to do alongside that. So presumably it's partly about... The bandwidth yes, point. My, that you my, made earlier. my
3: only regret about all of that was that it was only a quarter of my job and yeah. not the whole of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think if I'd had the whole of my time on this or somebody else had had the whole of their time on it with a similar relationship with the Prime Minister, we would have got a lot further.
0: Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Oliver, I should let you know that it's 10 2, so oh I think my God, you might have I to, to leave <laughs> us. You. Well, there.
3: I'm encouraged <laughs> anyway that maybe the next government is going to do good things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank,
4: Thank you, you for you. those Thank
0: suggestions. Um, Claire, I might yes. give you a chance to respond to that.
4: Just a couple of Remember, there's a lot that I could say. Thank you for plugging your report. I'm definitely going to read it now. What's it called? Uh,
5: navigating the crisis. Navigating uh, the Jeff crisis. The lead author.
4: Definitely. Right. Everyone can Google that now. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so I would say on that, so the big question there is who is in the room, that, that question. And I think there are a couple of things that might change this, I hope, for the better. One is that as, as we went on through COVID, we had the National Foresight Group who were, lear- who were live learning as we went along, but they didn't have enough clout, um, they were doing this kind of on a part-time basis with a very able um, researcher, um, but, but they weren't given the, the national clout that they should have been given along the way. That's the kind of group that, as we went through, go through an emergency, they should be feeding back in and saying, actually, have you got the right people in the room? Because we learn as we go along when an emergency happens what the knock-on effect is. The knock-on effect of closing schools should have been done with, uh, do they have the laptops? What's going to happen next with exams? All of that, thinking that through and having the right people in the room, Um, should be done. And I think someone who's doing live learning and feeding that in would help a lot to that. Um, I think also the story we tell ourselves during and after the COVID inquiry next summer is going to be really, really important. Mm. Because currently what I hear from the government is our response to COVID was fantastic. We did the furlough, we got the vaccine, we are world beating, full stop. I hope there's a lot more learning going on behind there. But unless we really honestly look the pandemic in the face and say, did we have the right people? Did we use the right data? Who was there? And we learn the right lessons instead of the wrong lessons, which we absolutely could do. And um, we could just go away from that saying we were it was it was all fantastic. We did this bit right. So the rest was good. So that's going to be really important next summer, I think, when it all comes out. Um, and in terms of um, Lords Harris talking about um, getting this right. And I think uh, a framework, framework, I don't know if it's going to be a strategy, but who would then hold it to account? Who would make it go through? What do we have around it? And the Climate Change Act has the COVID, Climate Change Committee of experts running next to it. It could be something like that that would actually enable this to happen and, and work better.
0: That's an interesting one to uh, ponder, we, uh, whether we need some sort of update to the civil contingencies Act. In our report, we also looked at stronger scrutiny in, in Parliament and outside Parliament, because yeah. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, not so much of a political cost of inaction on, on this agenda. Um, I'll come to Mike and then uh, Sophie. So Mike, <coughs> reflections on those two questions that you heard, one about data and evidence and, and one about leadership. I also wanted to mention our most popular question online from Joseph, uh, I think is, is quite in your space. So he's asking, how can we move from an approach to resilience which assumes crises are rare, one off events to one which embeds adaptive capacity uh, in a world where crisis is an increasingly constant phenomenon? Uh, and that seems to sort of align very much with, with the sort of what you were outlining earlier.
1: Uh, very much so. And um, you know, just some simple observations. So, my experience of COVID <coughs> was whatever the multi domain working that Oliver described is, I tried, I borrowed through central government. Trying to find out where the coordinating brain for the overall response was, and honestly, it was a, like looking for the holy grail, um, and um, yeah, and we and we kind of gave up, um, and. Um, uh, and that's why we started to really work out. Well, what can we do? What's the art of the possible? How do we coordinate ourselves? How do we make it easier for local and national government to interact with us as a sector, so that all of that agency of civil society can can be harnessed? And I remember going to make an offer to the with um, another chief exec of a big national voluntary organisation to the director of the civil contingency secretary before COVID, but during uh, Brexit, the, whole, the Brexit thing. Trying to make an offer to the nation. I mean, that's what we're, we're that's the offer we're trying to make about how we can help. But it was like, it was just so hard to, because of that bandwidth issue that Oliver um, talked about. So, all of, so I think as Toby's emphasized, it's about, it is about the leadership orientation, <coughs> which I touched on right at the beginning and that doesn't require a lot of money it's about expectations and building in longer term thinking the multiple domain the vulnerability index that we started to use used health information but it also uh, brought in information about digital exclusion about economic vulnerability and actually combined to identify at postcode level where some of the people who are most vulnerable uh, to COVID would actually be and we started to tailor ours and indeed to lead others into supporting in those places, so really using that information, and I think the embedding adaptive capacity is about you know that is embracing the fact we're in a very different world now. We used to go from one emergency, have a rest, and then the next one, have a rest. We're not in that world now, and I think we have to embrace that. And therefore, that adaptive capacity is almost it's not op- an option. It's a, it's an absolute necessity and requirement, which is why I'm serious about it's profile within government has to change because we're living with this. And by the way, if we're serious about this, you wouldn't leave it to a minister who's called paymaster general. What what signal is that um, in terms of the seriousness? And that when we go to the meeting, we're invited, you know, with two days' notice and all the rest of it, and we've got 45 minutes all to make our little spiels. We've got to be serious about this and embrace the fact that this is permanently with us um, and adaptive... Uh, capacity and capability building has got to be part of all our businesses because every organisation is going to be dealing with this, not just the emergency organisations.
0: Mike, thank you for that. And just while I've got you, there's an interesting question from Katie here online who's noticed that there seems to be sort of broad alignment on the panel about the sort of whole of society approach. But she's asking, if that's the case, what are the barriers to that? You know, is it what's stopping that from happening? Is it people in government not being persuaded? Is it the kind of tendency to hoard power at the centre. What's stopping that from happening?
1: Uh, Well, I think it is about that change of leadership culture, about curiosity. So much of this resilience, because as somebody asked right at the beginning, what is resilience? It's a whole, it's a multidimensional concept. We all know it when we see it, but it's got a whole different set of professional inputs and therefore actually requires leadership curiosity um, and willingness to sacrifice something of your own organization for the greater good and the greater whole towards a greater um, uh, you know a, a greater goal. And that's hard to do when you're hard pressed as individual organizations with your own individual boards and budget constraints. But that's what the requirement is, and that we've got to be nudged into. that's why it's a system change. And about leadership change that to which we need to be nudged, but to which we all, as leaders, locally and nationally, have a responsibility. And actually, we can make a lot of this happen and subside funding to really move it would really, really help.
0: Brilliant. Thanks for that. And Sophie, final word to you. Um, We'll come in on the the points that have been raised about data and evidence and and leadership. but also, you know, we've we've spoken a bit about some of those newer threats that are coming through AI. Biosecurity strategy is another one where we're we're sort of waiting for for an update. So beyond sort of the immediate national resilience strategy, what else are you? What what should we look out for in the coming months?
2: Thanks, Tom. Um, Toby, I completely agree uh, with your comments, so I won't add to them. Um, I think they're <laughs> bang on um, in terms of data and. Evidence, Oliver. I think there's a lot that can be done in advance before a crisis hits, making sure you've got experts who can quickly process real time data, that there are good systems, good visual ways of, of mapping what's going on or be, being able to model different scenarios. Um, one issue that I think is harder than it should be, and many, many people have identified as a problem, is the challenge of getting external experts into government, whether through secondments or um, technical roles, Um, I think making that kind of um, public-private step more um, smoother um, and being able to to bring in the best people you need for a job. Um, The IFG has
0: a a new report just out on that.
2: Oh, nice, I'll take a look. Um, and then lessons learned um, and, yeah, comments on on COVID response. I think there's no point just identifying um, what lessons learned are um, if there's not a clear plan for making sure that mistakes identified never happen again um, with a named funded person responsible for making sure um, that that is the case. Um, and then on top of that, um, this need to make sure that we're not fighting... The last war, so not just developing a better and better COVID plan, but thinking about what the next pandemic might be, or more broadly, what the next big risk event might be. Um, so preparing for these long-term risks across the board. Good news on that is that many of the, the policy solutions we think we know the answer to collectively and are, are pretty cross-cutting. Um, other other areas, I think, to, to make us more resilient, um, just to close, but beyond this um, national security framework, um, ongoing small amounts of funding and attention um, on these risks, um, voters and public citizens uh, such as everyone here today um, calling on... Their their leaders to focus on these issues um, and and showing that this matters to you and and to others, I think, is is really key. There is this ongoing challenge to make sure that resilience remains salient. Um, And then I just think more expertise within government on these emerging risks as, as they become better and better known. It's great to have the Institute for Government hosting this event, so, more internal expertise within government. Um, and the, the seriousness, I think, of, of, of leaders who really want to focus on resilience because it's the right thing to do mm. rather than because it's going to give them personal credits or rewards. Um, I think that's, that's one really interesting aspect to, to, to focus on, is, is bringing in serious future leaders who, who care about these topics and, as Mike says, are curious um, about finding ways to build resilience to them.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you, Sophie. That's all we've got time for. Uh, An awful lot there, if anyone involved in uh, the government's national resilience framework is watching, lots of suggestions uh, for things you might uh, at the last minute (laughs) include. Um, So our next event uh, uh, here at IFG is on how can government win the battle for civil service talent. That's on Tuesday, the 10th of January. So we've got a bit of a a Christmas uh, break. For those of you uh, who are here in the room, there are teas and coffees out on the landing if you want to stay and have a natter. Uh, it just remains for me to say thank you very much to uh, the British Red Cross for supporting this event. Thank you very much, all of you, for coming and all the rest of you for watching online and submitting and asking all your questions. And thank you very much to my brilliant panel.
4: Thank you.